1: The Andy J Podcast The Andy J Podcast The Andy J Podcast Hey there, welcome to the very latest episode of the Andy J podcast. I hope you are having a fantastic January if you're listening in real time and that 2022 has started really well for you. Now, if you are one of those wonderful listeners who checks out every single thing we upload, and my goodness, there's a lot of you, and thank you so much to those of you that are forming our little tribe, then you'll know that last week was pretty special because we brought you three Episodes. Three special guests. They weren't full hours in each case, but they were incredible conversations that I was so delighted to bring to you. Of course, they were all centered around this amazing piece of theatre, 2.22, a ghost story. So we brought you an incredible chat with Stephanie Beatrice as she talked about Encanto and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the lovely heart of gold that is Giovanna Fletcher, the queen of, well, not the jungle, because it was the castle, wasn't it, when she won uh, for I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, but she's just such an inspirational lady. And the marvellous acting stalwart that is Elliot Cowan and his incredible stories about those Hollywood A-listers and the, the fun he's had working with them. Well, this week, the AJ Pod returns to its usual format of having one guest for a whole hour. Now, we said at the very start of this show, a couple of years ago now, that what we would be doing was we'd be bringing you the best household names and the biggest celebrities we could, and also people of fascination and interest. And this week, we are finally playing good to our word. If you look at our incredible back catalogue of celebrities, our huge names like Jeremy Clarkson, and Olivia Coleman and Liam Neeson and many, many more huge, huge stars. You'll know that we have, I think, ticked the box when it comes to big, big star names. However, we haven't really explored fascinating folks that you may not have an awareness of in terms of their names. And that is where this week we are bringing you just a truly remarkable conversation with an absolutely fascinating man. His name is Des Powell, and he has brought out a book which he has co-written, uh, with a man who sounds like a very famous person, Damien Lewis, but it's not the one you're thinking of. It's not the, the actor who uh, you know from Billions and so on. No, this is a, a, a co-writer. Anyway, Des has brought out this book called SAS Bravo 3-0. So we're all familiar with Bravo 2-0, of course, Andy McNabb and so on. But Bravo 3-0 is Des's story of his troop that went out on a very similar mission at the same time and in the same place. And it's completely different. It is, it's the most engrossing, fascinating story. And Des is just an incredible character. I loved chatting to him. And our conversation, not only is he a really great guy who I have the utmost respect for, but our conversation, some of the things he shared, some of the stories he has experienced, some of the, oh, the lives he has lived... Terrifying, enthralling, fascinating, enchanting, just a, an incredible guy. And one thing I can tell you for sure is that Des is a guy, whatever you're facing, whatever challenge you are facing in life, Des is someone you want on your side. He's just a a, a remarkable man. So look, I will let him do the talking for him as I like to do with my guests, because he's just brilliant. This is a truly engrossing conversation with the sensational Des Powell. The Andy J. Podcast. Regular listeners to this show will know that we like to spend as long as we can with the nation's favourite celebrities. And today I'm going to do a little bit of explanation because my guest, you may not be aware of him when I tell you his name. But let me tell you, he has one heck of a story to share. He is a Sunday Times bestseller as well. The incredible Des Powell, who has just released SAS Bravo Three Zero, I think that's already revealed the nature of the conversation for you, is joining us right now. How you doing, Des?
0: I'm fine, Andy. And how are you today?
1: Des, I'm really well. It's lovely to be chatting. I hope you don't mind me saying, you know, people might not be aware of your name. Of course, we're used to having quite big name celebrities on this show and they might be thinking, hang on, Des Powell, who's that? And there's a reason for that, isn't there, Des? You've, you've not been treading the boards. You haven't been winning X Factor or anything like that. You've been doing something a lot more significant.
0: Uh, yes, I have. I've uh, brought out this uh, this book, and uh, as you said, it's called uh, SES Bravo uh, 3-0. And um, I think most people can remember some years ago about uh, the Gulf War and about the story of Bravo 2 and the book that Andy McNabb brought out. Uh, I think what most people don't realize is that there were three patrols, Bravo 1, Bravo 2, and Bravo 3 zero. And my book is it talks about our mission uh, that went deep behind enemy lines. Uh, our mission was quite simple but almost impossible to achieve. Uh, the patrols and particularly my patrol was to find and locate mobile scud missiles, rockets if you like, that were being fired from the Iraqi deserts onto neighbouring countries, mainly Israel. Uh, to try and bring Israel into the war, which would have created a larger conflict and therefore a larger loss of life. So I have been given permission uh, this year to write the book and bring it out because a lot of people say, how come you've waited this long to bring out the book? Well, after the Gulf War, I served for another 15 years. And as I said, this year I've been given permission. So. I think it's a good book. I think people won't be disappointed with it. So, yes, I've been quite busy Andy.
1: Yes, you have. It's an absolute page-turner, Des, and and we're going to dive into the detail in the book. I mean, it's interesting you say you've been having to wait. This is a very interesting and and quality year to be releasing this book, actually, because it commemorates the 30th anniversary since the first Gulf War, and, of course, the 80th anniversary of the SAS. So it's quite timely, in actual fact. Uh,
0: Yes, it is. When me and Damien, Started uh, planning to write the book. Uh, You know, Damien is the other author that I've written it with. Is that we were um, we wanted to bring it out this year to kind of celebrate that. Yes, it's the birthday of the regiment, eighty years old, and it's thirty years since the Gulf War. And I think it was quite timely to bring it out. Um, And and yes, it just felt right. Um, It's it's I think Damien. Uh, it, he, he writes this genre very, very well. He's probably the number one writer of uh, uh, writing about SES. And, and when I talked with him about it, I said, "Look, I said, uh, um, you know, this is how I want it to be, and this is how uh, what I want to see." And and, and Damien's very fussy. He's a historian. He goes into the archives. He, he, he writes about my regiment in good light. So if you were going to write a book about the SES, Damien is obviously the number one choice.
1: He has, he has done a terrific job, but, but it's your story, to be fair. His his words, your story, and, and it's all true, which is which is quite remarkable, Des. I mean, you've given us the sort of brushstrokes of the outline, and, and I want to talk about you and your life and, and everything that surrounds this, but just to dig more a little into the book, because uh, it's always difficult with books that I want people to go out to read. I don't want to reveal everything, because that would give the plot away and, and stop people from going to read it. So what I want to do, Des, is just focus on a few of the, of the sort of stories within the book that won't give away too much if you see what I mean. I don't want to spoil it for future readers. But in a nutshell, as you've just pointed out, you know you were deployed when you think of when, when people think back to the, to the Gulf War and that, and that war against Saddam Hussein. You sort of think of people fighting. You think of people on the front line and they're attacking each other. But actually, you don't necessarily think of that famous phrase behind enemy lines. And of course, as you mentioned, Andy McNabb, we were aware of Bravo 2-0. Bravo 3-0 was hidden from our awareness until, until your book. But the whole point was that Saddam had these missiles that he was able to take with him on the back of a lorry or something and just launch from wherever, not in a fixed place. I, don't, I think lots of people might not realise that actually... The missiles he was using were mobile, and your job was find these things.
0: Uh, yes, uh, um, and, and initially, Andy, we, my squadron wasn't in the conflict. We was on another task in the UK, and it was only of uh, a turn of fate that we got replaced by another squadron. And then we was in the conflict, but initially, our task was just pure and simple. We were BCRs, Battle Casualty Replacements we know only that this was going to be massive and the sas told everyone that this they were going to get involved in a big way but we were told they were going to lose a lot of guys so a couple of squadrons had already been preparing for many many weeks in the middle east and their job was to fight independently going over the border from saudi arabia and fight all the way up the iraqi desert to baghdad now we our, our task was just pure and simple. Anyone that got killed or injured, we was just to replace them. It's only later on that the Bravo patrols came about, and that is when our mission became more complex. But yes, you mentioned about the Scud missiles, the Scud rockets, is that Saddam was very clever. He was firing these missiles onto neighboring countries, Israel, as I said earlier. He wanted Israel to come into the war because he knew that this would create a larger conflict. It would make that part of the world highly unstable, and everyone would get involved. And the game-changers, Andy, were this is that not only was he firing rockets, Saddam, this is firing rockets onto Israel, but Saddam had also used chemical weapons. He used them earlier when he'd been fighting Iran in a, in, in a battle, that lost over a quarter million guys. He'd been fighting Iran all through the 80s. And what he'd done, he'd used chemical weapons. So the game changers were this, is that bringing Israel into the war, that was one game changer. The second one, we knew it was only a matter of time before chemical weapons were going to be used. And then the rest of the world would got involved. So we, our three patrols, We were there to find these rockets, um, locate them, um, send their locations back to headquarters so that airstrikes could be brought in and eliminate the targets. There was terminology being used such as Third World War, so we knew this was big. Now, that sounds very dramatic, Andy, but when you was over there and seen hundreds of thousands of troops forming up in Saudi Arabia ready to cross over the borders, into Iraq and Kuwait, we all knew that this was going to be big. So there was no pressure on us. We used to talk. We used to say, all we're going to do, the three patrols, the Bravo patrols, is to prevent World War III.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, what must, psychologically, Des, what obviously you're in two different, phases mentally you've got the battle ready you have to go out and do your job which that's one mindset which I want to talk about and then there's the second mindset which is that level of responsibility that's that's separate to the job the job is we've got to find these missiles we've got to survive find these missiles and make sure that none of our none of our troop gets hurt that's that's job one, one number one but mentally secondly is the pressure behind the job. How do you deal? How, how do you separate those two things, and and how do they change your approaches to to what you're doing?
0: Uh, yes, um, the pressure was immense. I mean, we knew that they, the, you know, when they started talking about third world war stuff, um, we thought, right, they're not far off the mark. You know, that part of the world, if it become unstable, you know, it would be real problems. So. Um, we are soldiers and we take orders and, you know, in especially in the SAS, you know, we're a disciplined bush. All the British military is well disciplined. But when you are given a task, when you are given a mission, we try our very best to try and achieve that mission to the best of our ability. Now, we know that our backs was against the wall. We were having all sorts of problems with uh, you know, equipment and um, logistics and the like. But what it is, you've just got to put your mind on the job. Now, the, the job itself in the SES is very arduous, it's, it's quite a tough way of life. So, we have a selection process that brings about a certain type of individual that can achieve the task. When you think about it, the SES is put in the vast majority of times into a negative situation, but you were expected to bring about a positive outcome. Now this conflict, you know, we knew it was going to get bigger and bigger. And the pressure was on us because we knew that if we didn't achieve our task in our mission, we knew that it could possibly thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives were at risk. And that, we knew it was important. So, the three Bravo patrols, that was the task in hand. And I think is that we have a certain type of discipline. You have to follow through. You know, In the military, especially in the SAS, you have this discipline that no matter how difficult it gets, you've got to follow the job through. Now, it's better to have tried and failed than not to have tried at all. So we always have that in the back of our minds. But yes, the pressure was immense. And you just have to put your mind on the job. It's not like we didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I'd been in the, the military for many years and I've been in the SES for quite a long time. So everything that comes your way is going to be a difficult task. But then that comes with the territory when you're an SES soldier.
1: Yes, I, I completely appreciate it. It's what you train for. It's, it's what you had been used to. But nonetheless, you know, when you're going behind enemy lines, you must have been aware that every moment when you were on the mission, you could have died. I mean, you could have lost your own life. You were aware of the other two uh, troops that, that weren't getting on great. Bravo one zero, Bravo two zero. You, I think you'd heard reports that things weren't going as well for them as 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 you'd hoped. You must have been constantly on edge, constantly aware that this could be the last day. This could be my last breath. We could be jumped at any moment.
0: Yes, you, you've touched on a few things there. Is that yes? When we The three patrols went out on the ground. At first, we were having some real problems. You know, we didn't have, logistics-wise, we we didn't have the right equipment. We didn't have the right weapons, uh, the right ammunition. Our vehicles weren't correct. We had problems with radios. Um, We didn't have the right mapping, nor satellite photography. Um, In fact, my mapping, it had 1942 on it. And right. the clothing that I wore I had Second World War. Uh, yes, it, it was it was a, a real problem. And then, to top it all, we had the coldest weather on record. It was it sub zero temperatures. In fact, um, and when we were told that it was going to be intelligence told us that we were going to have weather similar to a spring in UK, and it actually turned out to be the coldest winter that Iraq had ever had. And in fact, just underline it, is that men from my regiment actually died of cold exposure simply because the weather was far too cold. And you you didn't have the right
1: kit. I mean, that's, you know...
0: Yeah, it's... These are are things you
1: can control, aren't they, Des? Not you personally, but these are things that the people sending you out there, they can control it. They can make sure you're in the right gear, that you have the right equipment, that your satellite mapping is working, that you're you're given... uh, coats that aren't from World War II, they can do that, can't they? That's that's something that's in their control.
0: Yes, in the book, I, you know, I give the reasons where, why, and what for. But there was obviously blatant mistakes that had that, that happened out there. Now, you can only go on the information that you have, and you can only go on that intelligence at the beginning. So once you were given this information, well, then you plan on that. Now, when you get out on the ground and you realise the information, the intelligence that has been given to you is wrong, well, then now you've got to get on with it. Um, it's no use getting on the ground and whinging and whining and belly aching. These are the cards you've been dealt with, and now you have to get on with the task. But yes, you pointed out there was blatant mistakes. There was things that shouldn't happen. And I suppose the only way I can kind of elaborate on that is that in a conflict, is that it gets so confusing and things move so fast that you are bound to have mistakes happen. For example, logistically, it's very hard to get logistics to marry up with guys that are going out on the ground at the same time simply because things happen so fast. For example, when I left UK, in January, 91, it was only days before I was hundreds of miles behind enemy lines. But yes, there was mistakes. They shouldn't have happened. These things do happen. I suppose when you look at the weather, we have no control over the weather. Sure. And it, yes, and but we didn't have cold weather gear. And if you don't have cold weather gear to fight against the elements, well, then that is, that is pretty poor when you think about it. And um, yes, when we was out on the ground, we we they, I, I give details in the book, and there was a lot more problems that happened out there. But uh, yes, um, these mistakes happened, and I suppose we just put it down to the confusion of
1: conflict. Des, there's a there's a moment in the book where you talk about how you're being told that you're you're heading out, and you this 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 kind of senior ranking officer stands on a table, gives a sort of rabble rousing speech about how you're the tip of the spear and so on and and then just disappears you know he basically barks orders at, interrupts your your food barks orders at you and then disappears doesn't hang around for questions doesn't wait you know doesn't elaborate on anything doesn't say you know you'll be leaving in an hour or in a week or anything like that just tells you you know go for it did you ever feel a bit like a you know a pawn in a game of chess as it were you know just a piece of the machine and you were just being moved around at other people's whim
0: Um, Yes, uh, exactly, and that story, yes, was quite funny, and uh, in a way not sounding insulting or anything, but you know, his his typical officer that, you know, I get it, he was trying to build us up and give us kind of a team speech, and off you go and do the best you can, I get that. But um, we wanted him to hang around so we could ask him a few questions, and uh, I put that in the book. But yes, I suppose this is inevitable in a conflict that yes, You've got commanders above you and they do it's like a, a chess set if you like, and and they are moving these chess pieces around strategically, you know, trying to win the battle, the conflict, so to speak. But I suppose that's inevitable, that's going to happen all the time. I think probably what one good thing is, is that when we're on the ground, those guys, the experiences with us, even though our commanders give us a mission, give us a task, it is up to us we decide how that mission and that task is carried out. So the experience is with the guys on the ground. So that's a big advantage: is that we do it the way we feel it should be done. And um, and and I think because we have that freedom to do that, is that this is probably what gets us through the actual difficult missions that are always given to us as i said earlier on we're always put into a negative t- uh, situation but expected a positive outcome and and i think because of that we always have this uh, this determination to follow through i mean it's the motto of the regiment of who dares wins and it sounds dramatic when i say that but yes you know you, you know I, I use that all the time, and. Uh, and, and yes, when we was out on the ground, it was left to us we followed through and uh, you know and got a positive outcome with the mission.
1: I mean one of the things that permeates the book Des is, is this is this feeling of trust you talk about having faith in, in in your your fellow soldiers and of course you know from what you've just shared there as well, there's just this trust that the missions you're being sent on are the right thing because these people see the bigger piece of the puzzle as it were and then there's this trust from them to you that you'll do it how's necessary and then there's your trust in the rest of your regiment, the guys you're serving with. It's something that you address at the, in the very first chapter. There's there's an incident at the very start of the book and again I don't want to sort of spoil the stories for people but it absolutely sucks you in and I, and I, I read it thinking I'm going to chat to this bloke in a, in a few days time and oh my goodness he's you know this he's in a firefight at the very start of the book. There's you and, and one other fella and the, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned and it's your training and your trust in each other that gets you through that situation. How do you form and have such trust in each other?
0: Yes, it's said in life, arguably, that if you want success, you've got to mix with like-minded people. Now, when you join, when you volunteer for the SES, it's called selection, and the selection process has been there since the 50s. And actually, the selection process selected you so what happens is, you know, because of the nature of the job, is very, very difficult. Um, you've got to have a certain type of person, a certain individual that will fit to that sort of of, of lifestyle, and therefore you get a kind of like-minded individual, an individual that is more robust, and more as more resolve, a, a toughness, if you like. So, therefore, what you do, you create bonds, you create bonds which are stronger than family and trust. Is probably at the top of the list, and what trust is in the regiment is that you know you have got each other's back. You know you've got to trust guys in your patrol with your life, and if you trust people with your life, I mean that's quite a strong bond. So trust is a big one, yes, and yeah, that's a, that's a good story right at the book. It, it really starts off from get go, doesn't it? And but I think in the in the regiment is that we are all like minded. We've all come through the same selection, as we call it, the sausage factory. <laughs> We've all come through the same system. We all know each other. We know each other very, very well. We work only in, in, in close patrols, you know, sometimes two men, four men, six men, eight men. Um, but we know each other very, very well. So trust is very, very important. And yes, we do. We trust each other with our lives.
1: And it's it's just incredible. I mean, Des, I guess this is the soldier's way. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm reading it as a civvy who's, who's never done anything like this before. And of course, I would, I would vouchsafe that, that 90% of the people that live in the UK are absolutely fascinated in these things, but, but could never do it. I think there's a unique sort of spirit to, to soldiers, to military personnel that... that the common man, as it were, doesn't have. You know what I mean? We, we don't have that instant trust. We don't have that ability to follow those orders. We don't have that faith that the kit we're being given is going to do what we need. You guys, are, uh, there's a mindset, I think, that is it is a special one for in the forces, isn't it?
0: Uh, yes, without a doubt. I mean, the, the Special Air Service Regiment, the SES, has got a, a world reputation you know, that you know, arguably, you know, we're the best special forces in the world. And and I think because of the nature of the job, the the, the taskings that we have, the missions that we have, you must have a certain type of individual. And as, as I've, you know, I've pointed out, there's a selection process. And it's a very, very tough process. The process that you go through is, is six months long. Uh, the failure rate is over 90%. Uh, then you're on probation with the regiment for over three years. And I think that for a lot of soldiers that that volunteer, I think the thought of being in the SES, it it sounds good, but when you actually get up there and actually start to participate in the training, it's, it's completely different. So it's not for everyone. And I think that's, why the selection process is so important. I think it's not the, the training staff that actually choose you. It's the system itself that chooses you. Because I think is that if this is ever watered down, this system, well, then you won't get the SEF soldier. And, and I think this is something that is very, very important. The regiment's very small, um, and I think it's because our standards are very, very high. And, and I think that if you have got certain soldiers, individuals that are, are pulling to very difficult task missions, like we had out in the Gulf, well, then if you want success, you've got to have a certain individual. You've got to have a certain type of guy. And this is why the SES has such a great reputation. And it's a wonderful regiment. It's been my life. I served with the regiment for over 19 years. I was with parachute regiment before that for eight and a half years. And it, it, I, I had a great life. I had a great time. And, and I think the, 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 the strength of the regiment is within the men. So, And as I keep pointing out, this comes down to the selection process. The selection process, to me, is paramount. It's so important to have that SAS soldier every single time.
1: Yes, I can understand actually. You've you've explained that brilliantly, Des. I completely understand now why you have that trust and faith because you've been through the training and you know anyone else that can get through this too they're not just hard as nails they're battle ready they're they're the best of the best so yeah i can com- i completely get it that would form quick trust wouldn't it <laughs> you know you just yeah. know that they've done it they've been there they've got the t-shirt yeah. as it were so they've they've earned yeah. their place stood next to you in battle i mean it makes complete sense now let's talk about again i don't want to go into too many details but enough to kind of give a little overview here we mentioned Andy McNabb and his, his of course, Bravo 2 which I'm sure many, many listeners are extremely familiar with, uh, which was this foot patrol behind enemy lines. The the big difference between Bravo 2-0 and yours, Bravo Three Zero, is that you made the decision to go behind enemy lines, not on foot, but using vehicles.
0: Uh, yes, and as I pointed out earlier, is that the intelligence came in, uh, you know, that the mission could be achieved on foot, or possibly be achieved on foot, and possibly be achieved in on vehicles. Now, there's they pros and cons to both uh, going in on foot and going in on vehicles. One is that our tasking was not an offensive task. Our tasking was to go in and observe, observe and try and find these scud missiles. And so, if you take... Vehicles, yes, the, the cons is that you might not be able to hide these vehicles, you might be seen. If you go in on foot, then you don't have the problems with the vehicles and you could probably dig into ground and create an OP, an observation post, and not be seen. So these pros and cons to both. And the intelligence, you can only go on the information the intelligence that you have at that time. So yes, two patrols, Bravo 1 and Bravo 2, decided to go in on foot. Our patrol, Bravo 3, we decided to take two vehicles. Now, as I said earlier on, the the strength is within the guys in the patrol. Yes, we have the mission from our commanders, but we decide how we carry that out. So it is down to us. And yes, we, we two patrols on foot, one on vehicles, and that is how we're deployed. Now, when we got on the ground... And we could see that the intelligence that we had wasn't correct. So I know there's been a lot of criticism you know against the you know the, the Bravo Tuier about going on foot, but it's it's best to understand that they were only going on information that they had at that time. Now, when they got on the ground, yes, they could see that there's a lot of things wrong. The information that they have been given was wrong. So therefore, you know, they had more and more problems because of that. I mean, we had two vehicles, and we had lots of problems even with a vehicle. So it, it, when we got on the ground, we saw that, yes, there was things that was blatantly wrong. As I said earlier on, once you get on the ground, you can't wind your whine and bellyache. You've got to get on with it. But uh, hopefully, I've, I've, you know, I've given some reasons where I went far. Why he did that? In the book, it goes into more details, and I, I, I always give a strong opinion, and uh, um, and I think people will see the reasons why guys went in on foot and why they went on vehicles.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I and mean, it proved to certainly be the right choice, didn't it, Des? Now, you, you mentioned earlier when you were, were speaking just then that you were given an observation mission. You know, it, it was a it was a search and locate mission. However, there there is a point in the book where you mention one evening where you could see Baghdad that was getting attacked and it was getting bombed. And you have a team meeting together effectively where you decide you can't just stand by and watch innocent people being killed. You have to do whatever you can. And you decided as a unit to get involved and help innocent lives, didn't you?
0: Yes, as you can appreciate, one evening, yes, we could see these flashes in the distance and we realised it was Baghdad getting bombed. And we just sat there, we must have sat there for about an hour and a half in, in our vehicles. And Baghdad was stuck in hell of a pounding. We could see flashes from the aircraft Firing in rockets and bombs, and we could see Baghdad resisting—you know, firing anti-aircraft guns and so forth. But it was only the next evening that we actually spoke. We didn't speak that evening, and and yes, our discussion was that look, um, we knew that innocent lives were were uh, lost that evening, not intentionally, but because of the the fallout of conflict. We knew that people were dying that had nothing to do with the military and the like. And we said to ourselves, no matter what difficulties we're having on the ground, we've got to put our hands on our hearts and say, you know, have we achieved our mission? Have we achieved as much as we possibly can? Because we knew by watching Baghdad getting bombed, we knew that it was only going to get worse. We knew the conflict was going to get massive. We knew that thousands of lives were going to be lost. And as we said earlier on, even though it was a tongue-in-cheek about, "Oh, no pressure, then it's only Third World War, it's only when you was out there and saw it that you knew that this could escalate, yes, into a a Third World War. By the way, there was other terminology being used as well, another tongue-in-cheek, is that the Bravo patrols were going out on a suicide mission. Now, we used to laugh and joke about it, so the two things about World War Three and the Bravo patrols having suicide missions, it's only until we got on the ground that we've done, you know, so much, this is not far off the
1: mark. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that. what is that like, Des? You know, what, what is that like? You're kind of aware that that continual threat of death, you know, you, you talked about the very first time you were over there, you, you'd literally been there for a handful of hours before you were being told you were going to be battle casualty replacements right on there. Then, of course, that, that was changed to, to Bravo 3-0. But that endless threat of, I mean, is it something that you live with as a soldier anyway? Do, do military men always have this, which is, you know, when we're called upon where, you know, we might die? Or is it only when you're really in the thick of things that you realise that, that that could be it? Yeah, I think honestly,
0: I think it's something you don't think about. Uh, okay, the the, the nature of, of the job being a soldier, and especially you know being in the SAS Special Forces, you know, the nature of our job is that you're always in a, a tense situation, you're always in a, a dangerous situation. As I said earlier on, it's always in a negative situation, but they want a positive outcome. It's something you, you don't really think about. But when we're out on the ground, answering your question, is that yes, it becomes a reality. And especially when the information the intelligence that we had was all wrong. You know, they were telling us, for example, about the weather. Okay, you can't control that. But it was sub-zero temperatures. And guys died because of that. And then we didn't have the right clothing. In fact, the RSM of the regiment actually went off to Saudi Arabia to the markets and boats and loads and loads of coats and flew them out to the, um, to the other two squadrons that were out on the ground and, and to, to resupply them with, with, with cold uh, um, clothing. And then we had problems, then the ground. The ground, we were told, was going to be soft and just like you'd expect in the desert. Well, it wasn't. It was like concrete. It was rocky. It, it, we were told it was undulating ground. It wasn't. It was flat as a pancake, so you could see for miles. Um, weapons, ammunition, um, yes, we were having real problems, and then you start to think, you know, some things are not going too well here. But as I said, because we're soldiers and we have a task to do, and because of what we was kind of seeing with what was happening with Baghdad, and we knew that if we didn't do our best, the outcome would be would be dire. Um, it's you just get on with it. You just focus. Get on with the task in hand. And in a way, you just do for the best.
1: Hello, I'm Amber. I work with the team that bring you this show and the Driven Chat podcast. And we love that you're listening. It would be really cool if you could just chuck us five stars, subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you. The Andy J Podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's it's one way of thinking for sure. I mean, Des, you mentioned that at one point you even had to borrow stuff from, from the Americans, kit and ammunition and so on,
0: and supplies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, we, um, we flew into um, Saudi Arabia on an airfield, and I knew we were vastly short of kit. So I could see our colleagues on the other side of, the, of this the airfield, if you like, were living outside, and it was uh, the American SEAL teams. Now, the, the SEAL teams are very professional guys. And uh, um, so I did uh, the normal uh, cap in hand, the typical Yorkshireman, and I took the trip over to go and see our colleagues. And I started um, having a chat with them and asking them for stuff. And there's a story in the book, which I think is quite funny. I can remember it now. And the sergeant from one of the SEAL teams says, my goodness, he says, what is it you break SES? He says, you turn up to a conflict with just about nothing. And he says, and now you come over to us asking and scrounging for stuff. And we had a laugh about it, but in testament to these good guys. They got me, um, you know, food and clothing and even gave me ammunition. So um, I did ask them, I said, look, can I have some up-to-date um mapping and uh uh satellite photography and he said obviously buddy i can't give you that i said no i fully understand they've got their mission we've got ours but yeah. they really helped us and yes i've got quite a bit of equipment from them but i suppose i'm pointing out that we shouldn't have had to do that and and it is a bit embarrassing sometimes that we had to go over to our colleagues and and ask them for equipment that we were short of but you know, I'm big enough and ugly enough to uh, look after myself, and uh, I thought, I thought to myself, well. Let's get on the scrounge, and and that's and, and that's what I did. Uh, I managed to get quite a bit of equipment that way. And by the way, our uh, seal colleagues were very very good. They're a, they're a very professional
1: unit. Yes, you're extremely complimentary of them in the book as well, which is which is great to hear. And and actually, there's there's one little bit of kit that that you particularly seem to love, which is the seals water bottle slash mug combination because it it doesn't burn your lips. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, what it is, the typical British one, it's changed now obviously, but when you have a hot cup of tea, you know, hot drink, hot chocolate and whatever, out on the ground, well then when you heat it up over, it's a stove, which is something you use out on, uh, it's like when you go camping, I think people know what I mean, but it heats up the mug, so when you drink the mug it burns your lips. So the Americans had one back then that it's a mixture of the metals that they use. So I used to scrounge these off the Americans and just simply because you can drink straight out of uh, that. But also they have um, in their ration packs food, if you like, that you have food, which is in packets. They have like a pack, which is a heat pack. And I managed to get a few of those. And actually that come in, in Andy out on the ground because when it got very, very cold, I used to set these heat packs going, not to heat up the food, but to heat up my body. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and I, would, I would put it inside my clothing to heat me up and to keep my hands warm. But um, no, um, I suppose when, you know, when things are fairly difficult and, You know you're short of equipment you've got to do what you're going to do and as I said I went on the scrounge and uh, yes the um the guys were very good with it
1: yes yes absolutely now Des as as you'd expect from a book about conflict and 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 fighting and so on there are a few set pieces if you see what I mean in in the book if this were a film there'd be the big action moments right you know you know what I mean and I'm not going to give too many away but there's, there's, there's certainly something that I I would like to share where you talk about your experience on the ground of witnessing napalm, you know, the fiery hell that comes from above. Can you, can you talk us through that? Because, I mean, that sounds absolutely terrifying.
0: Uh, yes, there's... Um, the, 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 what, what we... You know, I, I give it the best description as I can, and I call it the, the napalm kind of incident. And the, the reason I said that is, I think people might remember back in the Vietnam when they saw footage... When the aircraft used to come in, and there'd be a large kind of ball of flame on uh, across, and it, it was an APOM that they used to use. And and one evening we're in the vehicles, and just in front of us, of us, suddenly there was this massive explosion and this big ball of flame, if you like. And probably you know a few seconds later, we might have been uh, amongst all that. What we think it was is that and we're almost sure is that it was an aircraft that had come back off its mission and, and had seen a couple of vehicles on the ground. Well, he must have just said, oh, there we go. There's a couple of targets and just took us as enemy. And luckily, his aim was off. And, it, you know, he, he probably had a payload that he hadn't got rid of and he thought, right, I'll get rid of this. And actually just missed us. We were very, very close. And and that happened to us a couple of times. They call it friendly fire or uh, we term it in the SAS as blue on blue. So we almost got killed by our own forces, if you like. And, and this was a problem that I pointed out in the book. It, as I said, it happened a couple of times to us, but it also happened to the other two squadrons as well. Yeah. And in fact, one of the other squadrons, an aircraft uh, fired its payload, a rocket, onto one of the vehicles and missed the vehicle but what they did, they managed to get part of the missile itself, some fragments on it, and awarded it to the pilot at the end of the conflict with a tongue-in-cheek wow. kind of saying to him, seemed <laughs> yeah. to him, ah, your aim was off. But that happened to us when we first flew in on a Chinook where we had friendly fire, and also that incident as well. Now, that's a real problem on the ground, simply because our mission, our covert missions, are so secret that no one knows about them. They don't tell any anyone. So therefore, when you have coalition forces, friendly forces, they are just gonna mistake us as enemy. So in a way, you can't really blame them, or maybe you can, and in this case, I'm glad his aim was off. Well, but yeah. that's always been a problem with us, is that our missions are always kind of secret, clandestine if you like, that no one is aware that we're actually out there on the ground and, and this has become a big problem over the years.
1: Yes, in, in actual fact, that highlights your need to be undetected by everyone, friend or foe. Y-
0: yes, and and we have discussed this at length, is the, the incident at the beginning when we actually actually infilling on the helicopter. And we get a, um, just to set the scene, you know, that there we are. Uh, in this helicopter we, we we're going on two chinook helicopters and there's a vehicle in each one and our three patrols are spread between the two helicopters now our helicopter is is flying just to set the scene it's flying 50 foot off the ground they call it nap of the earth flying and that's so we don't get detected by radar and and then and we're hundreds of miles behind enemy lines this aircraft weighs several tons He's travelling at several hundred miles an hour. Then suddenly we get a lock on from a Top Gun aircraft, which is above us. Now again, he hasn't recognised us. He's seen us as enemy. So now he's done a lock-on procedure, and that lock-on procedure means that he is now ready to fire his missiles. Okay, and those missiles will lock onto the heat source of the large helicopter that we're in. So now our pilot, is doing evading procedures and he's leering to the left and to the right, really violently. And I'm thinking, my goodness, what's happening here? And at one stage, he he was leering one side and I looked out of the window and I'm thinking any time now we're gonna hit the ground. And what that pilot does, he also releases a thing which is called chaff and flares. And it lights up the sky, I can just describe it really as fireworks. And what he's actually doing is giving off a false heat source just in case the top gun does fire his rockets, that it will confuse the rockets and we won't get impact. And that in itself, lighting up the sky, I'm thinking, are we getting fired at from the ground, from the air? And it was very, very scary and very, very uh, tense time, if you like. But you know what done on me is, is this, is that I'm thinking, Well, here we are in a large taxi, if you like, hundreds of miles behind enemy lines. No one knows we're here. There's a chance we're going to get shot down by our own forces. And this is ridiculous, you know. And no one knows who we are. And I just have to accept it because you just go, you know, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do. And in testament to the special forces pilot, that was flying the Chinook. Um, the testament of how good he was. That I'm here today to be able to talk about it.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Des, what's you sort of say? You you, you kind of have to accept it. And and I realise I'm asking you to kind of put yourself back in the helicopter in, in, in a horrible memory for you. But but can you recall? Were you focusing on your breathing? Were you just trying to stay focused? Were you holding on because you were clearly being thrown around like a roller coaster in the sky, or or, or were you just sort of? accepting it and seeing what was happening and and kind of thinking, can I do anything to help? No, I'm I'm not in a position where I can make any difference to this.
0: Uh, Yeah, initially, yeah. It's a very scary, a very tense time, you know, because suddenly everything just happens and the aircraft is all over the sky. And it's a very confusing time, you know, and you think, what's going on here? we have got engine failure and the lights. But um, what it was, we have a loadie in the back and I managed to grab him, pull him over. And I'm I'm saying, what's wrong? And he says, I think we've got lock on. And, And you have a headset and I can hear the pilots going, lock on, lock on. And you can hear the tension from the cockpit and um and yes what happens is is that you know are are we going to brace for impact or you know am i bracing for when you know we get fired upon and a rocket hits us just very confusing your mind's all over the place but after a while you just calm it and you just go do you know i've just got to trust the pilot Uh, and in fairness he did um he did a fantastic job and, and actually got us out of trouble.
1: Yes. And trouble is something that you've been in many times, Des, obviously, you know, 19 years in the SAS, you'd expect it. But there's, there's something I would like to talk about that I think we are we are safe to discuss because you and I had a little chat off air about various things that, that aren't allowed, you know, the, the, for, for various different reasons, security and so on. And, and the other one, because I want people to, to come to the book because it's a remarkable read. So I don't want to give away too many of the stories. However, and I'm sure you know where I'm going here. One of the things that I think you yourself admit you are afraid of, the times where you feel fear, is, well, a certain kind of parachuting, and and this is because you have had you, your your nickname for a while was kamikaze because you have had not not one, not two, but three failed parachutes.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, I can laugh about it and. It's nice that I can laugh about it because, yes, um, I can honestly say when you have a malfunction, you think you're going to die. It's as simple as that. And, you know, some people might say, well, he's laughing about it. It's happened three times. And three times you think, oh, here we go again, sketch, you know. And, uh, yes, um, when I joined the regiment, uh, I joined a troop, and they call it air troop. And we specialize in high-altitude freefall parachuting. And, um, yes, uh, people always say, what's the most scariest thing you've done? And without hesitation, I can say uh, high-altitude free pole parachuting. And, um, and, by the way, just going back to the, the malfunctions, there's a system that you cut the chute away. People say, how would you cut it away? It's, it's just a system that you have that you, you pull a, a handle. It releases the, the damaged chute, and you go onto your, your reserve.
1: Yes, thank you for clarifying that. Well, because if I was to say to someone, "Yeah, he's 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 had three parachutes that have failed," you'd just assume, "Well, that's it." You've you, you what you've had three lives. How does that work? But no, you yeah, did you the, did yeah. get down safely in the end. Just to, just to clear that one up, your second yeah, shoot, yeah. as it were, was, was, was yeah, there. what
0: it is. And remember, your reserve parachute always fails. And someone said to me the other day, "But what if it? What if your reserve doesn't work?" I goes well, it's just not your day. And um, <laughs> yes. but um, no, there's a system where you cut the shoot to win. And then you go to reserve. Um, I'm, I'm Justin, not going to lie
1: to you. I was I was on the verge of doing a charity parachute jump until I read your book, and then I'm like, <laughs> absolutely not.
0: <laughs> oh well, I'm, I'm sorry I put you off. Um, I would advise you do a tandem jump if you're going to do a jump. Do a tandem with a, a qualified instructor. That's a lot lot safer. Yeah. But, so um, so let's so
1: let's just go through this. You're, you're you're jumping. You've, you've got many, many hours of, of parachute experience before you've done hundreds of jumps. There's no issue. Let's, I'm going back to the first one, but then I want to talk to the, about the high altitude one again, because there's clearly yeah. more to learn about that. But so yeah. let's talk about that first shoot failing. You know, you, you're, you're, you're basically, this is like second nature to you now. You've done so many jumps, you know what you're doing. You're not even thinking really, you're just enjoying it as it were. And then, yeah. then suddenly at that time when you're due to pull the shoot, because that's how it works, isn't it? You jump out and you, you count a certain amount of feet and so on. And then, then it's ready, you, you have to pull the chute out now. You go to do that, and it just doesn't work. What, what's happening? What's, what are you aware of as you're falling through the sky?
0: Yeah, what happens is is that you can fill your chute deploying off your back. And then all of a sudden you can feel that it's not slowing you down the way you should do. And as you're looking up, you're thinking, hang on, that's something I don't like the look up, you know. And uh, um, and you are taught very quickly to get rid of that shoe quickly, as quick as you can. Because as you can appreciate, the more height that you have in the sky, that the more time that you have to, to, to put it away and get on your reserve. If you leave it and start messing about and try to make it work, you're getting lower to the ground and that can be more dangerous. So so the drill is is that you go straight into pulling a handle which releases it cuts that shoot away and then you go on to your, your reserve and um and, 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 and that happened the first time. It also I had a second and a third as you know. And by the way, these happened all round in different areas of the world, all around the world. But each time that it's happened you just think, Oh no, here we go like, you know, but but you know some at um is that the procedure works. It works every single time. It's, um, it, it, your reserve opens every single time. And even though parachuting is a very, very dangerous sport, you don't hear of many fatalities. It's it's quite a, a safe sport, uh, you, know, you know, but pointing out that when things do go wrong, they go wrong drastically. Um, I must point out that sport parachuting is very, very different to military parachuting. The two are chalk and cheese, completely different. Um, Yes, if you go off and and have fun, yes, it's great fun and uh, you can enjoy it. But when you do high altitude freefall parachuting, that is when you're earning your money.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, that's, that's what I must talk to you about. But when I just want to clear this up, when you say cut away, you know, cut away the, the, the parachute that hasn't worked, do you mean literally get out a knife from your, from your pack and cut through uh, the, the rope?
0: Uh, no, I didn't, And it's a good question because people have asked me this, you know, what it is, these, uh, on your parachute harness, there's, there's a couple of handles uh, or a pad and a handle. And the drill is simply as this, is that if you don't like the chute that is above you, it's not flying properly, anything that you're not pleased with, there is a system with a pad that actually releases the chute itself. And we call it right. cutting away, it's probably right. the wrong term, but it releases the chute off your back and, and, and it's, it works very, very well. And what that does, that puts you into free fall again. So now you have got rid of that chute completely, and you go on to a completely new parachute, your reserve chute. As you can appreciate, if you re- release your reserve while your malfunction parachute was still trying to sort itself out, they would wrap together, right. and you're have tried try it it twice as much up. problems. Yeah. yeah, so what they do, we call it cutting away. And the procedure is just releasing that parachute off your bike. And you go now into free fall and come onto a brand new shoot altogether. So you're like starting again, so to speak.
1: Yes, only closer to the ground <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, with, and with less time to fix things. But yes, <laughs> nonetheless, thankfully you did. Let's talk about this high altitude jump because this sounds, I mean, the fact that you've described it as one of the things that genuinely scares you means it must be absolutely terrifying. What is, <laughs> what is so frightening, thrilling, terrifying about the high altitude jumps then?
0: Yeah, people ask me, right? What's the most scared thing you've done in the SES or what gives you the adrenaline in rush? I says this is about as close as you're going to get, and and just to set the scene, so I'm in Air troop, We specialise in high altitude freefall parachuting. Now, um, the, the reason we do this is that we are we call them entry skills, and it allows us to enter into a volatile area, into a volatile country of conflict. Without being detected, without being seen, so we are in an aircraft which is uh, twenty-five thousand feet up in the air. Uh, that's about five miles up, just to give you some some you know, Gosh, just some ideas. High, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, and it, it, that aircraft might be on the same flight path as a uh, as a normal aircraft. So you, if you're on radar, they're not picking it up as a, a military uh, aircraft. So. Uh, when we do exit, people uh, that you know, we're not seen, we're not detected. Now, twenty-five thousand feet up in the air, you have to breathe on oxygen. There is no air at that stage, so uh, you may have a patrol of four or six or eight guys. You are breathing on a console which is inside the aircraft. Oxygen. Uh, you you look like an astronaut. You have a large helmet with uh, with oxygen devices. Um, probably the more, you look like a pilot sort of thing, you know. And you have goggles and you have uh, altimeters and you have a breathing apparatus on your body as well. You are carrying your Bergen, which is all your military equipment, which is weapon also. So all up, you're about 250 pounds, including your parachute and the lights. And then just before you go out of the aircraft, and by the way, uh, everything is done on whiteboard. you are now writing and they're showing you that you have twenty minutes before okay. uh, before you jump and ten minutes before you jump, five minutes before you jump. And then when you are ready to jump, you go on your own oxygen equipment, which is on your body. So now you start to, you you shut the console down and you are now breathing on your own oxygen, which is you know which is like an oxygen bottle which is on your parachute harness. And then you come towards the tailgate of the aircraft. And as the tailgate comes down, you may have a pallet and a pallet with equipment. And this is equipment that you might not be able to carry on your body. This could be, let's just say specialized equipment that can't be carried. Now that goes out into the sky and that, as a draw chute, And that draw chute slows it down. And so it can find its own path going through the sky. So as we come to the tailgate, and, and I can tell you now that you are that high up that you start to see the curvature of the earth, oh, okay? Wow. Wow. And and there's a story in the book, and I, I think you've read it, which talks about where I'm doing this jump and I'm in a cold country. And it is, before I leave the aircraft, it is 30 below. Yes, That's how cold it is. And when I was jumping on that particular story, it was that cold that my goggles were freezing up, my altimeters giving me the height, I couldn't see. Um, My breathing equipment was starting to malfunction because of the cold. And your extremities, you know, your fingers, uh, you can't feel them. And, And plus then you are ready to jump off the tailgate. And as you do, you push the pallet out first, then four of your 6 of a jump out, and you make a kind of, you get around the pallet, and you now start to free fall, and by the way, free fall at that height is about two minutes. Which is a long time. That's two minutes free for
1: a long time, even if you're (laughs) especially if your oxygen isn't working. You it's not like you just hold your breath till you're down, is it? I mean, crikey,
0: yeah, yeah, that's two minutes. And you were reaching speeds of excess. Well, terminal velocity is 120 miles an hour. If you change the shape of your body, you can reach speeds of up to 180 miles an hour. Now, at night, 30 degrees below, and traveling at those speeds, the wind chill will come down even further. Absolutely freezing and the pallet in the sky has a nasty habit of coming and bumping into you in the sky. Okay, so you are screaming towards the ground. You can't see Uh, properly
1: because your goggles are are frozen (laughs) over.
0: Yes, and you're all looking at each other, you can't see your goggles, and you're waiting for your shoot to come off your back. And what it is, you have an AOD, an automatic opening device, Um, And and it pulls your chute for you, because you have that much equipment on you, it's very hard to pull your chute. However, (laughs) because of the cold, sometimes this malfunctions, and you have to override that, and you have to pull it yourself. So there you are, jumped off the tailgate, you've got the pallet in the sky, which is bumping into everybody. You've got six guys around this pallet, two minutes free fall, Uh, reaching speeds of 120, 40, 180 miles an hour. And now you are waiting for your chute to pull off your bike, which normally is about 3,000 feet from the ground. And you're all looking at each other thinking, oh, come on, let's go, let's go, is it happening? And then when it happens, you breathe a big sigh of relief. But then in in that story, the wind was so severe that it started to blow me. Into a volatile country, and yes. uh, obviously in the, in the book it gives details. But it was a twist um, I wasn't
1: expecting, days. You know, you've, you've got all of this <laughs> up against you, and then there's the chance that the wind is blowing you effectively into er- enemy territory. You know,
0: it's like, co- oh come yeah, on, co- how have we that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um, it's that's uh, put it this way. That's the biggest adrenaline rush I have ever had. And actually, when I talk with other guys in the regiment, they always say the same thing. the scariest stuff I've done is—it's all scary. As you know, we have boat troop that deals in submarines and boats and stuff. Yes. We have mountain troop that deal in mountains and climbing. We have mobility that deal in Land Rovers and cars and bikes. And then you have us air troop that deal in anything to do with high altitude. And uh, so, yeah, it's always scary. I haven't come across a guy that said he's never scared of doing that it's always um it's always testing there's always things going wrong and just to emphasize that, that is that there has been colleagues that I know that have died simply because of following that procedure that hasn't worked out. Let's face it, if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen in the air or the elements and it's normally going to happen at night and when things go wrong they go wrong in a big
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one of those things where you look at it, as a civilian, you sort of, you hear stories of people that do bungee jumps or walk across fire or whatever, and it gives them this, this kind of rush, this adrenaline that you just described uh, and it, and it, they therefore they can go on and kind of conquer their fears and so on. This, what you've just described sounds like the sort of super injection military version of that. And you even, you even <laughs> say yourself, cause I was thinking, what, what sort of an impact does that do to you as a human being? When you get through that, you know, the, just to recover from the adrenaline alone must be shattering but you you describe it like this which i think is brilliant you had to harness the fear and use it to give you absolute self-belief the confidence that you could win through almost anything yes it's,
0: the, the way to answer this question is probably let me answer it like this is that it is everything we come across in the regiment is is difficult if you like it's, it's testing and I said earlier on uh, that the, the the real reason for selection is that it selects a certain type of indi- individual. And, and and yes, so people say, what's it like, the life in the regiment? And the word I use is limitless, is that when I went up and I joined the SES, you know, and, and, and when I passed after six months, I joined the squadron and I got into the lifestyle. And that's the only way I can describe it is limitless. And, and, and let me explain why, is that, that suddenly, I'm mixing in a high-echelon type of guys. They are all like-minded. They're all raring to go. They're all passionate. They're all fit. They're all just wanting everything to work. And and some examples would be, suddenly, I heard of an expedition coming back from Everest. There's Some guys from Mountain Troop had been doing that. I'd heard some guy breaking some free-fall records. they have been free-falling abroad. Um, I heard about a guy going on an 18-month Russian course and speaking Russian fluently when he came back. I heard of a guy uh, that had been uh, rowing certain parts of the Atlantic, and they'd done an exposition there. And there were guys that were running marathons and and cross-country races. And there was a guy, a funny story, he went on a medical course, he came back, and his wife was pregnant. And she couldn't get to the hospital in time, so he decided to deliver the baby. Yes. And um, so all of a sudden, I realized I was in the right place. And I think what's answering your question is that you realize you're amongst um, an elite bunch of guys that are just, that it's just limitless. And the good thing about being in the SES, they encourage you. They encourage you to be the best you possibly can at anything you can do. And that, that, um, that, if you like, that mindset, you know, is really, really enthusing. And and everybody encourages everybody else. Everybody taps everybody on the back. Well done. You did well on this. You know, well done on the Russian coast. You know, well done on, on the Atlantic. Well done. And everybody is, right, let's get out. Let's go and celebrate. Let's go and have a drink. Yes, you did well on that. And that is fantastic. The regiment wants you to the best you possibly can. So what that does that spills over into everything. I mean our motto who dares wins. Arguably it's said when we're in the regiment that you should live your life like that. Who dares wins. Yes. And it when you're up there when you feel you're amongst this it's an atmosphere it's a mindset it's it once you're amongst that and everybody's on the same page it is it is very very encouraging and and you realize most guys realize that this is our time. This is my time. Most guys that go up there do not have a short career. I had 19 and a bit years. Guys don't go up there in two or three years. When guys go up there, they have long careers because they realize this has took a long time to get here. And now I want to do everything I possibly can. And the regiment encourages it.
1: I think that, what a sales pitch Des, to be fair there's another phrase that you use you know there's who dares wins obviously is is a phenomenal one but there's one that really landed with me which I love and this is a sort of mantra that you've had which is home for tea and medals.
0: <laughs> yes what it is is that the human in the regiment is brilliant it's, it's banter it's mickey taking you know and and what we do is that when things get a little bit tense and by the way when things get a little bit scary, when they do get a bit tense, you, the guys tend to provide more humour. There's more joking. There's more comments. And when we go into a mission, a task, if you like, th- there's a saying in the regiment that we all turn in and look at each other and say, right, let's get the job done. Let's get home and let's have to your medals. And it's a tongue-in-cheek, if you like. It's, it's you know... but it. it's <laughs> meant. Yeah, it is. It, it's great. You know, it's great. And I think... You've also mentioned something in the book, haven't you, that there's something that I do personally. And, and what it is, it, yeah, it's like a mantra. It's uh, and, and what I do, I, I wear these dog tags. And and the dog tags, guys wear them as your name, number, rank. and It's a military thing. And what I do when something's coming up tense, I just focus myself. I grab, grab the dog tags, which are around my neck, and I just say, come on, Des, let's get the job done and let's get off home. And so it's a similar sort of thing. And it's just the case of just focusing, just bringing your mind onto the job. But I don't just do it. I think most guys do it in the regiment. I think if most guys would admit to it, they would use that same saying, let's get the job done. Let's get off home. Let's celebrate. (laughs) Uh, team medals. Let's do it.
1: I love it. I love it. Des, there's so much we could discuss. There's so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but I'm mindful on timing. Uh, I just wanted to make it clear to our listeners how how remarkable you are, what an incredible story the, the book is, how brilliantly written it is. But just to touch on some of your other achievements, you know, you've also trained with the Norway Special Forces, you've trained in New Zealand, you've worked in Hong Kong patrolling the border, the Malaysian Special Forces and anti terrorist training. I mean, you've been there, done that, got the T shirt drunk the tea, earned the medals.
0: <laughs> Do you know, so it's, uh, I decided very early on, it says in the book, you know, I, 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 I was so surprised that I joined the military and then when I joined parachute regiments, I did eight and a half years, but that parachute regiment uh, made me more and more serious to join the SES. And then when I went up there and I had a very long career over 19 years, I think myself and most guys realize that you have come through that selection process. You have come through the sausage factory. And because you got there over the years and you have worked hard for it, you are now here. And you want to get involved in everything. And the good thing about the regiment, they get involved in everything. So, yes, in the book, I've managed to go all around the world. And I think that mindset that I described earlier on, about just being positive in everything you do, and because let's face it, you go th- th- there's no surprises about when you go to the regiment. Everyone knows that it's a very tough and arduous lifestyle, and you are going to get involved in just about every conflict going. So it's no surprise you know that it's going to be a tough lifestyle. But it, it's 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 un, it's quite hard to describe is that when you're amongst those guys, when you're amongst that mindset, that elite mindset that positivity of we can make anything happen that that limitless mindset is is just a fantastic um, view on life as I said that who dares wins on life so yes when answering your question when I got to the regiment I just decided I am going to do every single thing I can so I volunteered for everything and most of the time you don't have to volunteer because they send you out there so yes luckily I, I joined the right, uh, I joined Airtru. I enjoyed what I did there, and I, they teach you a hell of a lot of things from, from medics to Dems to signals. I spoke languages. Um, you did bodyguarding, VIP protection, anti terrorism. You learn how to drive cars, uh, VIP evading, even using cars, ramming techniques, and the likes just the name of the flu. Um, I'm mentioning that because I mentioned it in the book. But you do everything. You travel to all these countries. You meet fantastic people. You work with other special forces around the world. And yes, it's a life that I wouldn't have changed for everything. I had a fantastic time with a regiment. And what is nice is that those three big letters, SES, are still with me today. They still represent me today, even writing this book. And as I said, uh, regarding the book, I'm so pleased that I'm able now to put this story into a book and by the way the story doesn't just talk about the goal as you pointed out it talks about many many other things so i think there's something in there for everything but i am really really pleased uh,
1: what we've done regarding the book. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a superb read, Des, and, and testament to, to your remarkable career. Uh, just a quick one before we go. You know, obviously now the book's out, and, and you know, you've, you've, you've talked about you've done some security for celebrities, including people like Halle Berry and so on, despite the fact that in, in real life you, you're basically Jason Bourne, as far as I can tell. <laughs> what What is life like now, now that you're not kind of constantly in the SAS, now that you're not going out on patrol and so on? What's life like for you? Is it is it boring? Are, are you Kind of, are you a bit bored now with, with day-to-day, or are you okay?
0: Uh, no, not at all. In, in fact, most guys, because they have a long career in the SAS, they get everything out of their system. Right. You know, you, you do everything that you want. So for me, when I left, I felt content. I felt that I'd done everything. And and then when I did get out, uh, I'm I a real point to mix with like-minded people, all my friends. I like-minded people. They're all positive. They all, by the way, you know, regarding this book, they all, you know, encourage me to bring the book out and they all celebrate with me. So I'm still mixing with like-minded people. Uh, I feel very content today. Um, I get involved in projects that I think are very, very positive and, and actually keep me busy, so to speak. But you have to realize that you can't stay in the regiment forever. I I had a long time. I mean, in in the forces all up, I did over 28 years. So and in the regiment over 19 years. And I think that's probably enough. Um, But when it was time to leave, uh, yes, I I left content. So answering your question, no, I have no problems. I don't get fed up. I I, I keep my day very busy. Um, I've got great people around me. I've got some great friends. I'm keeping in touch with the regiments, and and as I said, regarding the book, he's just a fantastic project, and I'm, as I said, those three big letters represent me all the time. One guy said to me years ago, and I didn't realize up until now, he says, I was just coming into the regiment, and I was talking to him. He says, remember, he says, you're always going to be SAS. He says, even when you get out of the regiment, you will still be SAS. I didn't understand what he meant then. Until I until I got out, and especially since I've written the book, the amount of feedback, the positive feedback I have had regarding the book and about the SCS has just been phenomenal. Yes. It's been absolutely fantastic, and that really gives me a, a satisfying feeling. You know, I'm really it really makes me feel humble about our people. Not only do they feel the, the, the they respect the regiment, they feel it's a big deal. But the the support that has been given to me has just been absolutely fantastic. So answering your question, you've got to leave it out there. If you're going to do anything, do it the best you possibly can. Uh, Be content, as I did when I left the regiment and just go, you know, that's it. Moving on to other things now.
1: Hugely impressive, Des. Hugely impressive. You as a man, the book, it, it makes me incredibly proud of our of our soldiers and, and and the SAS in particular. It's it's remarkable. So you've you've done a great job here. You know, you've written a, a phenomenal book. You've told your incredible story and yeah, it's you can't help but be impressed. Other than you know not having the right kit, you guys—the training, the, the 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 dedication, the commitment, the the service that you guys have have have, have given—is is, is just—it's something to admire and respect. And uh, I I'm humbled chatting to you. I think it's incredible. So Des, thank you so much for your time, for your company, and, and for for everything you've done for us. Actually, it's 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 amazing.
0: That is very good of you to say that. It's very kind words. And thank you very, very much for having me on today. I have really enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much.
1: It's been my pleasure, Des. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an honour. Really appreciate it.
0: Okay, bye-bye then. Brilliant.
1: Take care, Des. Thank you so much. What a, what a chat. Wow. The Andy J Podcast. Oh just listening back to it then again. Oh, Des is amazing. He has lived some incredible, incredible things. I mean, some of the experiences, the parachutes and oh my goodness. So yes, do check out Des's book. I can't I can't endorse it highly enough. It is it is phenomenal. Bravo 30 SAS Bravo 30. Do get do give it a go. It's absolutely brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for your company today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. Uh, for another sitting of the Andy J podcast. I really, I'm chuffed to bits with the number of people that are tuning in week in, week out now. Thank you guys. You, you rock. Um, back with more, same time, same place next week. Another big guest for another hour of conversation. We'll catch you then. Go well, be kind, and I'll see you next week. Bye bye. The Andy J podcast.
0: Planning for your next trip?